So it's 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses, uh, I'm just going to read verses 5 through 7 as we, as we start this morning. We are to add godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 and beginning at verse 5. For also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Peter says here, just as we start, that we are to add godliness. Over 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, as Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him to train for, to exercise in godliness. So Peter says we're to add it. And Paul says to Timothy, strive for it, pursue it, exercise yourself in it. But now I want to add something else. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about some who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof, or deny its power. So between Peter and Paul, it's add it, strive for it, and then be aware that some have a form, but deny the power thereof. When Paul talks about denying or, or having a form of godliness and denying the form thereof, 2 Timothy 3. One writer illustrated it this way. He said in the summertime, sometimes in the evening, you may be sitting out in the yard and you hear that noise, those bugs that are in the trees, whatever, and, and those are cicadas. We sometimes call them locusts. They're not really locusts, they're cicadas. <laughs> but if you go and look in the trees, sometimes you will find that shell. Have you ever seen that? And they have climbed out of it or whatever, and they have left behind, and it looks like it's a form of, but it's empty. And he said, that's like what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 3. There's a form of godliness, but there's no life in it. And so we need to be aware of that. So this morning, as we get into this, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what is godliness, what's the motivation for godliness, and then what's, what's the result of it. So first of all, what is godliness? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we are to add it, and there's probably, <clears throat> excuse me, there's probably no higher compliment that you could give to someone or to a Christian than to say to them or say about them, now that is a godly person. But I want to ask you this. Do you know that a person could be, say, a conscientious parent? Or they could be a good employee? Or they could be a good neighbor? And they're not really a godly person? Godliness, as you take a look in the New Testament, that word actually only appears just a few times. And if I counted correctly, there's only 16 times that the word godliness appears in the New Testament. But also, as one other writer suggested, 
That word only appears 16 times, but really the entire Bible is all about it. And so whenever you take a look at those instances in the New Testament, we're going to look at all 16 this morning, but when you take a look at those instances, it's like there's importance to it. And when Peter and Paul use it, it's like it's full of meaning. And so Peter says, add it. And Paul says, strive for it. Be aware that there can be a form of godliness, but it's empty. And then over in Titus, the second chapter, he said, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness. So we're to add it, we're to strive for it, we're to recognize that there can be a form that is empty, and ungodliness we are to deny. Paul also told Timothy to pray for those who are in authority that we might live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness. Train towards it. Add it. And Paul tells Timothy also that godliness has value for this life and for the one to come. So based upon just those passages that we give consideration to so far, godliness is not an option. Godliness is something that we're told to add. Godliness is something that we are to strive for. And that it's profitable for this life and the one to come. So we need to understand what is godliness. So, as I oftentimes do, when I'm working on a lesson, I bounce this idea off my wife. (laughs) And so this week, I asked her, I said, uh, what's godliness? And she knows that when I'm working on a lesson and I ask her a question like this, it's like, oh no, here it comes. <laughs> and so she stops, sets down, and I said, what's godliness? She said, well, being like God. I said, good answer. She smiled. I said, now hang on. She's like, eh. <laughs> I said, so godliness is being like God. I said, would you agree that godliness is God-likeness? And she said, yeah. Because oftentimes, short answer, when you ask somebody, what does godliness mean? What do they say? Well, it's God-likeness. I said, so you agree with that? And she said, yeah. I said, so, okay. So it's being like God, it's God-likeness. So let me ask you another question. Can you make stars and planets and those kind of things? She said, well, no. I go, okay, too big for you? <laughs> How about like an animal? A dog? Can you make a dog? A cat? No. How about a flower? No. Weeds? No. So, God-like. You still working on that? <laughs> and she's like, well, no, that's not what it means. I said, so what's it mean? Well, it's like character. So yeah, it's it's like that. Or it's like Christ. And it's like that. But I want to say to you, it's like that. And so here's where I think we need to investigate a little further so that we understand when the scriptures are using the word godliness. What does that 
me. So I'm going to give you an example from the scriptures so that we start to get insight. Genesis, the fifth chapter, is talking about Enoch. In about verse 24 of Genesis chapter 5, speaking about Enoch, it says, and he was no more because God took him. But he walked, in verse 24 it says, that Enoch walked with God. And so as we even talked about in class this morning, we got a concept of what that means when it says he walked with God. But the Hebrew writer gives us a little bit more insight into Enoch and his relationship with God. Because the Hebrew writer tells us in about Hebrews 11 and verse 5 that before he was taken, he received this testimony that he pleased God. So now we know from Genesis that Enoch walked with God. And from Hebrews we know that he pleased God. So his walk obviously was pleasing to God. And so we put those together. And I think we're starting to gain some insight into what godliness is all about. It is a walk that is pleasing to God. So in the New Testament... When it talks about godliness, there's an attitude, there's a devotion that is involved in godliness. There's a walk, and there's a devotion, there's an attitude, because it's pleasing to God. Now hold that thought. But let me add this. Godliness is not just a feeling or an attitude. A person might have a certain sentimentality towards God. (laughs) And they might say things like, oh, I love God. But you look at their life and you think, wait wait a minute, where's where's the walk? (laughs) So, feeling or attitude by itself does not fulfill the meaning, New Testament meaning of the word godliness. But now, on the other end of that spectrum, just because a person is a good moral person, they might be that good neighbor, good employee, good parent, whatever it is, but they have really no desire to serve God. That doesn't fulfill the New Testament meaning of godliness. So we have to keep that in mind. Whenever we think about godliness, what all is involved with godliness? So when Peter says that we are to add godliness... And when Paul says that we are to strive for it, and we think about Enoch and that he walked with God and that he pleased God, we have to think about what all does that mean? That there is a devotion there, there is a walk that is there that is included in godliness. 
But I want us to think about also, what's the motivation for godliness? So when we think about it, it's devotion and it's action that are together. But can we, because Paul writes to Timothy, and he says to exercise himself in godliness, strive for godliness. And if we take godliness and we say, well, it's devotion and it's walk. So let me ask you, can we grow in our devotion to God? I think so. Can we grow in our walk with God? I believe so. But if you have devotion and you don't have the walk, that's not godliness. But if you have the walk and not the devotion, that's not godliness. So it's both of those together. So godliness is a life that is lived, devoted to God. Enoch is an example of that. Galatians, the second chapter, in verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's no longer me. It's Christ living in me. And I recognize that he loved me and gave himself for me. That's godliness. Take a look at the book of Philippians. I want to read to you. Philippians, the third chapter. I'm going to begin in uh, about verse 12. Philippians chapter 3 at verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says he's pressing on, forgetting about those things which are behind, that I may lay hold, that I may attain, that goal, that prize, the upward call. Verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are of mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So Paul's saying, there is something that we achieve, don't let go of that, hold on to that, and keep pressing that you might attain even greater things. So as we take a look at this, we come to understand it's something that we're to add. There's something that we can grow in. And then it can become more developed in our lives. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, let me, let me just reiterate this a little further before we get right into that. Once again, remember what godliness isn't. Godliness isn't just feelings alone. And the reason why I bring that up is this. 
Have you ever talked with someone and they may tell you about their daily routine? And they may say something like, well, you know, each morning I get up and I have my coffee and I start my day off with my daily devotion. And, and what they mean by that is they have this daily scripture reading or maybe they have a, a daily prayer. Or maybe they have a daily song or whatever that is. But once again, that's kind of the extent of their relationship with God. That by itself is not godliness. Now, I would never tell anybody, don't get up in the morning and pray, and don't get up and read your Bible, and don't. No, keep doing that. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, godliness has got to have something added to it. It can't be just that all by itself. But there's the other side of this once again. And this is where I think it's important for us who are quote-unquote religious to understand godliness also. Because sometimes people can try to walk a certain way, but their real motivation is not necessarily pleasing God. Sometimes people may walk a certain way because their parents expect them to walk a certain way. Sometimes a person may walk a certain way because their spouse expects them to walk a certain way. Sometimes people may walk a certain way because the other people that they are associated with expects them to walk that way. Once again, I wouldn't tell anyone, don't read, don't pray, don't come to church. (laughs) What I would say is, if you're going to live a life of godliness, if you're going to add godliness to your life, it's got to be done for the right reason. Because that's what godliness is. And that's the only life that is pleasing to God. What do I do? And why do I do it? Because this is what he said. And that's what's pleasing to him. John 14 and verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So a godly person, exemplified in Enoch, is one who walks and is devoted to God. That's the stamp on their life. And you can see it. A life, as Paul suggests, that has just a form of godliness is extremely difficult to sustain. So the only life that's pleasing to the person and to God is one that flows from devotion to Him. So godliness is not just a person 
who has a sentiment towards God. Godliness is not a person with just a moral conviction. Godliness is not just going through the acts of religion without any real devotion. Godliness is devotion to God that leads to those actions, that walk that is pleasing to Him. So now then, as you think about devotion, devotion really has three parts. And I'm going to give you a slide here in a moment to kind of keep this in mind as we go through this. Because if a person is going to live this life and do it in such a way as to be pleasing to God, they need to be devoted. I need to be devoted. You need to be devoted. And if we're going to help somebody else be devoted, we need to understand this. Because you might have a person who has a sentimentality towards God, but is not really walking with them. And on the other side of that, they might be trying to walk, but they don't, they're not really devoted. And so we're, we want to move from that to where it ought to be. And we need to understand how to get there. And we need to understand how to help other people get there. So this is the way I want you to think about it. Devotion to God is like a triangle. And on the bottom and on the base of that triangle, there's the fear of God, there's the love of God that causes us to have a desire for God. And you put that all together, and that's devotion that will lead to that walk, that godliness in life. I want you to think of it like this. It's the fear of God. It's the love of God that leads to a desire for God. That's devotion. And that devotion leads to that life that's pleasing to God. First of all, the fear of God. One commentator said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. You know, in, in modern day society, modern day religion, talking about the fear of God, it, it's not all that popular, is it? Fire and brimstone, that was for an age gone by. You know, it's like we don't want to talk about that. And people don't want to hear that much anymore, do they? And sometimes they'll say, well, that, that's just old fashioned. But the fear of God needs to be talked about. And as Christians, we need to understand that. But let me suggest to you also that the fear of God is used in a couple of different ways in the Scriptures. There is the fear of God which is like anxious dread. When I was a little kid, wasn't always perfect, hard to believe, but sometimes I can recall when my mom would say to me, when your dad gets home, I'm telling him what you did. That would bring on an anxious dread. <laughs> a fear. And that's one of the ways in which the fear of God is used 
in the Scriptures. Once again, in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and God come walking in the garden, and He called for him, and Adam had hid himself, and God said, What are you doing, Adam? And He said, I heard you coming. And so I hid myself because I was afraid. And so there can be kind of this anxious sort of dread. And that can actually be healthy. Romans, the third chapter. Just before Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he talks about those who have no fear of God before their eyes. So in other words, they're just going to run to do whatever they desire because there is no fear of God before their eyes. So actually a fear of God can be a healthy thing. And that's one of the ways in which it's used in the Scriptures. But there's another way in which it's used in the Scriptures. And that has to do with a reverence and awe a respect, understanding the holiness of God. Actually, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2 and verse 12, when Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Peter also writes over in 1 Peter, the first chapter, that we, are conduct, that we are to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our stay here on earth. But once again, for the Christian, the primary meaning is there is a respect, there is an honor, there is a reverence, understanding the holiness of God, the majesty of God. The kind of awe, the kind of honor, the kind of reverence that we have is the kind that is displayed in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah is in the temple and he sees the holiness of God and he falls down and he cries out, Woe, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. He understands the distance between God, a holy God, and, and, and sinful man. But in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in the 10th chapter that we are to enter into the most holy place with confidence. But in that same book in the 12th chapter, he says that we are to remember that our God is a consuming fire. In Romans the 8th chapter, Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. But then in 1 Timothy 6, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light. So can you see how that's used by the New Testament writers? On one hand, there is a dread. There is a fear. But for the Christian, we understand 
what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and therefore we can cry out, Abba, Father. But at the same time, Peter and Paul both tell us that we are to conduct ourselves with fear. So there's a reverence, there's an awe, there's a respect. But we also know the love that God has for us and what He has done for us through His Son. And it's important that we keep that before our minds because I've actually heard some people pray it sometimes and be very casual in addressing our Heavenly Father. It was a number of years ago, a number of years ago, when I was just hadn't been a Christian for very long and was attending someplace else. <laughs> and the person that led that prayer that morning said, Good morning, Dad. I said, What? We can get too casual. We recognize the majesty, the glory, the holiness. And we recognize the love and the grace and the mercy and what he's done. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can enter into the most holy place with confidence. But we never forget who he is. And that he's a holy God. And how we ought to conduct ourselves before him. It says, one writer said, there's a healthy tension that is to be maintained. And I would agree with that. But secondly, there's the love of God. Godliness includes the person that is God-fearing and then they appreciate the love of God. But a godly person will also see the gulf that is between us and how that gulf has been bridged by God and what He did through His Son. I want to read to you from 1 John, the 4th chapter, beginning at verse, verse 8. It says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. John says the, man, the, the love of God was manifested towards us. We understand what He's done for us. You know, when we take a look at the cross... We should understand what was taking place there that day. And to understand a holy, just God who cannot tolerate sin. But at the same time, a God that so loved the world that he gave his son. We ought to see the magnitude of His holiness and His justice. And we ought to see the magnitude of His grace and His mercy and His love for us. And the more that we understand about God and holiness and His wrath against it, the greater the appreciation will be 
for the cross when we look at it. In Psalms, the 130th chapter, and about verses 3 and 4, and I'll just kind of paraphrase what is stated there. The psalmist says, O Lord, if you were to count iniquities, who could stand? And the obvious answer is, no one. Now I want to ask you this. Peter says that we're to add godliness. And Paul says that we are to exercise ourselves in. Train in. And so can't we come to a greater understanding of what God has done for us there? And can't we grow in our devotion then as we come to a greater understanding of God and what He has done for us there? And so as we take a look at the foundation of this triangle, there's the fear of God. And can we come to a greater understanding of that? I think we can. And then on the other side, there's the love of God. And can we come to a greater understanding of that? I think we can. And the more that we come to an understanding of those two, the more it will help us to have a desire for God. So as somebody suggested, true godliness is based on a healthy fear and an understanding of the love of God that He has for us. In Psalms, the 42nd chapter, that's where the writer says, as the deer longs for the water, as the deer thirsts for the water so my soul longs after you one writer suggested the metaphor that is used there he said I can think of nothing greater when I think about a hundred deers thirst for water and he said that's the metaphor that is being used there Psalm 63, David said, Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. I'll return back to Philippians chapter 3. And once again, this time I'm going to read verses 8, 8 through 12. Paul says, Yet I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but from that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Do you see what Paul's saying? I want to come to know that. I want to come to experience that. I want a greater understanding of that. I want to have the fellowship in His sufferings. So I think we have to ask ourselves, are we there? (laughs) Or do we know somebody that needs to be there? And if they have that kind of devotion, would that change their life? So how do you help them to have that kind of devotion? And what I'm suggesting is, the more we know about the fear of God, and the more we understand the love of God, the greater the desire will be for God. So Paul's saying, that where he was in his devotion to God in his walk with God and you recall where Paul was when he was writing the book of Philippians (laughs) he had already been on three missionary journeys he had already been shipwrecked he had already been stoned he had already been beaten he had already gone through all of those things and now he's under arrest in Rome and he's writing these things and he's saying that where I am now is not enough. I want more. Never satisfied. But always wanting more. So you think about what is godliness? It's that devotion and it's that walk. What's the motivation for godliness? I believe it's a good understanding of the fear of God, the love of God, creating a desire for Him like He has for us. And then what's the result? Genesis chapter 1 and about verses 26 through 28. And we talk about this all the time, right? God created them, male and female, in His image. He created them. And he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. In the image of him. From the very beginning. And when we read in Genesis chapter 3. That when Adam hid himself. That God came walking in the garden. He was there with them. He was in fellowship with them. And that's what God intended from the beginning. But then something happened. Sin enters in. And that breaks the fellowship. And that separates. 
from then on what's contained in the scriptures is God's plan to restore that fellowship. In Revelation, the 21st chapter, about verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the culmination of the story. God walked with man in the beginning. Sin entered in, and God wants to restore that fellowship, and that's what we see. But how's that devotion how does that desire for God brought about? By the greater understanding of God and who He is? And a greater understanding of the love of God and what He has done for us? And for us to see the desire that He has for us? And how much He wants us to have a desire for Him? So that we might be in fellowship with Him. Earlier chapters of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Writing to the church at Laodicea, and it says, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. What he's saying is, if they would listen and let him in, they could have fellowship once again. Godliness takes all this into consideration. It's devotion plus action. And those two things together is what's described in the New Testament as godliness. In Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says that we are to add godliness. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that we are to train ourselves towards godliness. And so we come to understand exactly what that is, how we can, how we can grow in that. Do we understand the majesty, the holiness, the wrath of God? Do we understand His love and His forgiveness, how it was manifest at Calvary? Do we understand that from the beginning we were made for fellowship with Him? Do we understand that the story contained in the Scriptures is so that that fellowship can be once again restored and enjoyed for eternity? That's godliness. I want to extend the invitation this morning to any and all that are here. What the Lord did for us at Calvary through His Son is made that possible for us to have that relationship with Him once again. That He desires with us so much 
and that he wants us to desire to have with him. But it's not just sentimentality. And it's not a walk without devotion. Godliness is the two of those that are combined together. It's devotion coupled with that walk that is pleasing to God. That's the only life that is pleasing to God. So we're going to extend the invitation this morning. And if you're here and desire to be in that kind of relationship with Him, we'd invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.